Genesis chapter 22. In God's word it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, and took the ram, caught in the thicket by its horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Amen. Lord, how blessed are you for your faithfulness. How blessed are you, Lord, for your goodness. We love you, Lord. You are the God who satisfies the longing soul who gives good things to the hungry soul, 
And Lord, our prayer is that you would do that, just that, this morning as we open your word for those who are longing, for those who hunger after thir- uh, th- hunger and thirst after righteousness, Lord, we pray that they would be filled. Lord, that you would come now by your Holy Spirit, take this revelation that you have given to us in your word, and direct it to hearts and minds in a way that would bring pleasure to you and glory to you. And so, Lord, we want to be alert now as we open Genesis 22, but we ask that you, above all, would get glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, two weeks ago now, we walked through Genesis chapter 21. And in Genesis 21, two major events took place in the story of Abraham. First, Isaac was born. And second, Ishmael was sent away. Well, our chapter this morning, which is Genesis 22, opens with the words, after these things. That is, after Isaac was born and after Ishmael was sent away, something new then transpired. What happened was that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham replied, here am I. God tested Abraham. Well, as we begin today, I want us to camp here for a moment or two. These these words, God tested Abraham, tell us that there are times in the life of God's people when God's method will be to test us. In this verse, the word translated from the Hebrew as our English word test has to do with running a trial on something, whether that something is a person or a physical item of some sort, running trials, testing, in order to evaluate and to determine a quality or qualities in that person or in that item. So, for example, the same Hebrew word test is used over in 1 Samuel 17.39 when David puts on Saul's armor but refuses to wear that armor because he hadn't tested it. David hadn't put Saul's armor through any trials, through any tests, to determine the advantages of the armor and or the weaknesses of the armor. Well, in our verse, in Genesis 22:1, God is undertaking a test, not on armor, but on Abraham. God is going to run a trial on Abraham in order to reveal Abraham's character, in order to show the quality of Abraham's faith. This is sometimes God's method with his people to test them like this. Some of you may be in the middle of a test right now. Now, what's very important in verse 1 is that the narrator, and I hope we notice this, the narrator tells us, the narrator tells the readers about this test 
that God was running on Abraham, the narrator lets us in on this this little piece of information here. But Abraham, we need to notice, Abraham, for his part, is unaware of this test that's being run on him. Abraham is not told here that God is testing him. Now, when I was in school, I always hated surprise tests. Are you with me? You know, the tests that were sort of suddenly sprung on you that you could not prepare for. But I think in some ways, the results of those surprise tests were the most accurate results. Your mark on a surprise test revealed where you were actually at in terms of knowing the material. Well, Abraham gets his surprise test in verse 2, but again, Abraham is not aware that he's being tested. Let's talk about Abraham for a moment again. As we've seen throughout his story, Abraham is about a 50% or 60% student where the subject of faith is concerned. Abraham had passed the initial test of faith when he obeyed God's command to leave Ur in Genesis 12. He got up and he left at the command of God. But he lost a few marks on that test by taking Lot with him. And we talked about that when we were back in Genesis 12. Well, later on, Abraham had passed an obedience test when he circumcised himself and circumcised all the males in his family, in keeping with the command of God. But Abraham had failed, had failed a patience test when he went into Hagar and conceived Ishmael outside of the parameters of God. And Abraham had failed tests of trust when he had lied to both Pharaoh and to Abimelech about the identity of his wife, Sarah. So Abraham has proved himself to be a 50 or 60% student in the subject of faith under God up to this point in the story. Let's see how he does now on this surprise test that God administers in verse 2. God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, friends, we are going to camp even longer on verse 2 than we did on verse 1. There is so much here for us to grasp. First of all, we need to point out, because I think this is important, that verse 2 is clearly, clearly repeating some of the motifs that were found at the very beginning of the story of Abraham in the first verse of Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, 1, God had commanded Abraham, if we remember, he commanded him to go from his country to the land that God would show Abraham. Well, now here in Genesis 22, 2, God commands Abraham to go to the land of Moriah 
to the mountain that God would show Abraham. So the language of Genesis 12.1 is picked up and used here in Genesis 22.2, which would indicate that Genesis 12.1 and Genesis 22.2 are really bookends to the story of Abraham. At the start of Abraham's story in Genesis 12.1, God had commanded him to venture out into the unknown And now here at the close of Abraham's story at Genesis 22-2, near the close of his story, again God is commanding Abraham to venture out into the unknown. If Genesis 12 was a crucial moment that began the story of Abraham, Genesis 22 is a crucial moment near the end of his story. Now friends, I can't express strongly enough the difficulty of this test for Abraham here in Genesis 22. Again, you and I as readers, we can breathe a sigh of relief because we know that this is only a test. But Abraham doesn't know the test nature of what God says here in verse 2. He hasn't been told that this is only a test. If you can... Put yourself in the shoes of Abraham just for a moment. Think of this. God shows up out of nowhere and God begins his speech in verse 2 not by saying to Abraham, Abraham, take Isaac and go. But rather, God says, notice what he says. If you look at the text, God says, take your son. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go. Now, just for some comic relief here for a minute, there is an ant crawling on my Bible. And as I looked down, I just thought, you know, consider the ant, you sluggard. Thank you, Lord. That's never happened to me before. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go. Do you see this? God is purposely laborious, or he is purposely painstaking in his identification of Isaac. You know, to say to Abraham, take your son, well, that's one thing. But then to say further, your only son Isaac, that hits a little closer to home for Abraham. Isaac was now, for all practical purposes, Abraham's only son because Ishmael had been driven away. And then for God to say further, whom you love. Well, that now touches a deep nerve right in the center of Abraham's heart. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah, which would be about 50 miles away from where Abraham was, and he's traveling on foot. Go to Moriah and what? Offer him there. As a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall 
Friends, it's like if Abraham had been cruising along peacefully at 110 kilometers an hour in his ancient Near Eastern Oldsmobile on a sunny day without a care in the world. Suddenly now, the engine explodes and Abraham swerves into the ditch and a bear pops out and threatens to eat Abraham. The shock... The shock of this sudden command from God should not escape us. It should not escape us. We should not try to rationalize it away or explain it away. Sometimes the untamable God, the untamable God, does stuff that we just can't make heads or tails of. Amen? And here is a prime example of that. Abraham, that son of yours, you know, the son of whom you and Sarah had to wait for for so many years, the son who you love, the son named Laughter, the son in whom is wrapped up all the promises that I've made to you, Abraham. I need you to take that son named Isaac. Isaac, who is the embodiment, the literal embodiment of my promises and the focus of your hope, Abraham. Take Isaac, in whom the salvation of the entire world is at stake. Isaac, who I just said, not five chapters ago, would be the one with whom I would establish my covenant. Take Isaac, Abraham, and... Burn him to death as a sacrificial offering to me. Abraham, I need you to take pains and to make sure that everything I've promised you up until now literally goes up in smoke. Friends, sometimes we can't make heads or tails out of God. Can you see the sheer difficulty of what God was asking Abraham to do here? Can you see how illogical was this command of God and how horrifying the prospect of what God was asking here? I think if verse 2 fails to surprise us or if our tendency is to try to theologize it in order to, to somehow make it more smooth and make it more pal- palatable, then I think we're just simply reading it wrong. This is a shocking command here in verse 2. There are no two ways about it. Sometimes we can't make heads or tails out of God. But I'm going to try to take a stab at making heads or tails out of God here. What is God doing here with this command to Abraham? What is God getting at? What is this test really about? What's what's the question that God is asking you here in verse 2? And what's he asking me? Well, I've been concerned in my own life. And I've been concerned with other Christians around me over the years that many of us have what I call a carrot theology or a carrot faith. That is, we're in it for the carrots that are held out to us. We gravitate, don't we, to promises of health 
the promises of wealth, success, strong family, more friends, etc. Come to Jesus and you stand to gain something. But what if you come to faith in Christ and life gets worse? What if when you're in Christ, God takes away your possessions? Or takes away your spouse? Or what if a a trusted friend betrays you? Or what if you labor in the gospel for years and see little to no fruit for your efforts? Then what? The question for us is, friends, and I want you to listen to this very closely. The question for us is, if you only have God, if you only have God alone, is he enough? Is God himself a greater treasure, God himself a greater treasure than anything God might give? God himself. Is he better and more of a treasure than health? Is he better and more of a treasure than a spouse? More of a treasure than all the wealth in the world? Does Psalm 73:25 ring true in you and in me at the very depth and the core of our beings? Lord, there is Nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I think this is what God is getting at in verse 2 of our text. For Abraham, the basic question was, was God more to be desired than Isaac? Would Abraham cling to Isaac? Or would Abraham show by obeying even this absurd command that he treasured God above all? Would Abraham trust God for the unknown outcome? Would Abraham's covenant relationship with God take priority even over the blessing named Isaac? Was Abraham in it for the carrots only? Or was something else going on in his heart? Well, friends, verse 2 is a shock. Verse 3 is a further shock. Watch Abraham now. Watch his just absolutely stunning response to the bizarre command of Almighty God. Watch this. Abraham does not utter a word in reply to God. Abraham just saddles up his donkey and he goes. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Absurd command in verse 2. Now verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Stunning. 
But don't miss the narrative effect in this verse here. We are told that Abraham, notice this, that he took two of his young men. Notice that. He took two of his servants. And yet, notice, it's Abraham. It's Abraham who saddles the donkey, who cuts the wood in preparation for the journey, and not the servants. In fact, the servants don't do a whole lot in this whole narrative. The focus is on Abraham, who is 110 years old at this point. Abraham saddling his donkey, imagine it in your mind's eye, saddling his donkey and chopping wood. Now just imagine this. In your mind's eye, imagine this 110-year-old man slowly, I think, because he's, he's 110 after all, slowly carrying out these rather menial tasks. And as you picture him doing these things, so centering the saddle, tightening the straps on the saddle, grabbing an axe, finding the axe, grabbing the axe, balancing the wood, coming at the wood, 110. As you imagine this, I think the purpose of this verse is that we are given time as readers to wonder what was going on through Abraham's mind at this point. I imagine Abraham taking a swing at some wood while mulling over the character of God. I imagine him saying something like in his mind, saying, this command seems absolutely absurd. But God has proven trustworthy in times past. He takes another swing. This command terrifies me. But God has proven himself righteous. And at the 11th hour, when I had all but given up on God, God came through and gave life through Sarah's dead womb. So maybe God's got this. Maybe I trust him as I walk out into the dark. Maybe I obey this bizarre command. Abraham saddled up and chopped wood, and Abraham took Isaac and the servants, and together they went out to the place that God had commanded. Verse 4, look at verse 4 with me. Friends, what day was it when Abraham reached the place? It was the third day, and third days in Scripture are often resurrection days. Amen? Will a resurrection happen here? On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, do notice here, do notice this. Abraham and Isaac have had to travel the better part of three days to arrive at, in the land of Moriah. Three days. Three days of Abraham playing the tape in his mind of the shocking command of verse 2 while Isaac was there right beside him walking with him. I think this was part of the test. Would Abraham persevere? Would Abraham follow through on God's strange command even after thinking it over for three days? Notice also in verse 4 that Abraham sees the place of the pending sacrifice from afar. Far off. 
his eyes land on the place where Isaac is to be offered. And I wonder, did Abraham's heartbeat increase at that moment as he sees the place in the distance? Did his blood pressure perhaps rise some? Now, if I could have my way, I would jump into the text right here after verse 4, and I would run the ram in the thicket over to Abraham right here to relieve Abraham of his agony. I'd like to spare Abraham of the trial and give him the ram right here. But God doesn't work that way. God will give what his child needs only after the child is already at the ominous place. Only after Abraham is already in the crucible already at the place of horror, then God's provision and help will come, but not before. Verse 5. Abraham sees the place off in the distance, and Abraham now says something amazing. He says to his servants, again, all the servants are meant to do in this whole narrative is stay with the donkey. <laughs> Abraham says, I'm glad you came on this long journey. Now, here's your task. Stay with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, notice this very carefully, friends. Abraham here promises the servants, read this carefully with me, he promises the servants that both he and Isaac will return after their worship time at the mountain. Both will return. Not just Abraham, but Isaac with him. Now we wonder here, what was going on in Abraham's mind at this point? I think Abraham was simply clinging mightily, grasping tenaciously to the promise that God had given him just one chapter ago that through Isaac, Abraham's offspring would be named. God had said that. How could it now be otherwise? God had planned the future around Isaac. Amen? And I think Abraham is maybe thinking here, well, you know, if I reason this out, God already raised Isaac to life once when he brought life out of Sarah's dead womb. That had been something of a resurrection. Could God not do that again now? Could God not provide another resurrection of sorts in this instance here on the mountain? I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Hebrews 11.19 says that Abraham, listen to what Hebrews 11.19 says, it says that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham seems here to have resurrection faith. He's passing the faith test. Verse 6. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Isaac will now carry the wood that is to be kindled for his own death. And Abraham took in his hand the fire, probably some sort of flint, and the knife. So they went both of them together. Verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And Abraham said, Here am I, my son. Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Verse 8. Abraham said, Elohim Yira. God will provide, or more literally, God will see to it. There is a verb of seeing in the original text here. God will see to it. Now, when God sees to something, friends, when God sees a need and acts to supply the need, then God himself is seen and God gets glory. Abraham says, God will see to it. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, friends, we have to watch Isaac a little bit here. Probably by this point, Isaac is at least in his early teens. In fact, some ancient Jewish expositors argue that Abraham was 37 years old by this point. But he's at least in his teens, and Isaac has been loaded up with wood. Isaac is a young guy who's strong. Abraham is 110 years old and frail. If Isaac would have wanted to escape Abraham here, he could have easily done that. But Isaac stays. Why? Because Isaac is showing faith in God also. Isaac is trusting God just as Abraham is trusting God. The two of them, father and son, are in this together with Yahweh, the God of Israel. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Notice here the slow, methodical actions and progress in this verse. Abraham builds, he places wood, he binds Isaac, he places Isaac. What was going through Abraham's head at this point? We wonder. And then we get verse 10, and I think it's virtually impossible for us to step inside either Abraham's or Isaac's shoes now. We just can't fathom this. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, in your mind's eye again, friends, imagine the scene here. Abraham is standing over top of his child, over top of the child of promise, 
overtop the future of all Israel. He's standing overtop the child in whom the salvation of the world was at stake. And Abraham has a sharp knife. And as Ian Duguid puts it, Abraham is about to cut off forever the source of his joy simply because God had asked him to do so. We can't fathom it. But, verse 11, one of the greatest theological terms is the little word B-U-T. Because now there's a change in direction. But, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Now there is some noteworthy intensity and urgency here in the voice that now comes out of heaven and addresses Abraham. Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here am I. Verse 12, he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And we breathe a sigh of blessed relief. Our blessed God has intervened. Amen? And God says to Abraham, notice what he says. He says, now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And the question we ask is, didn't God already know that Abraham feared God before this incident ever happened? Did God actually have to learn here that Abraham feared God? Isn't God all-knowing concerning the human heart? Why would God say, now I know that you fear God. And my answer is this, that God did know. He did know Abraham's heart backwards and forwards. Long before this incident ever unfolded, God knew that he knew that he knew the level of fear and the level of reverence for God that Abraham had and that Abraham would have. But now in this moment... As Abraham acted in obedience to what God had commanded, God experienced what God already knew about Abraham. God experienced what he already knew about Abraham. So the idea here, when God says, now I know that you fear God, it's not that God suddenly learned this, but it is, as Bruce Ware has put it, Ware says this, the idea here is that God says, in the experience of this action, I am witnessing Abraham demonstrate dramatically and afresh that he fears me. And I find this both pleasing and acceptable in my sight. Now I know that you what? That you fear God. What does it mean to fear God? To fear God has to do with a certain frame of mind and frame of heart. To fear God means to approach him with awe. 
to reverence him, to honor him, and to worship him. For Abraham, the fear of God worked itself out, as it always should, I think, in obedience and in commitment. Hans Walter Wolf once wrote that the fear of God is, listen to this, the fear of God is obedience, which does not hold back even what is precious when God demands it, and commits to God even that future which he himself, he himself has promised. Once again, the fear of God is obedience, which does not hold back even what is precious when God demands it, and commits to God even that future which he himself has promised. Well, venturing forward to verse 13, what we notice now is that God, notice this, he does not simply call off the burnt offering altogether, does he? No. Instead, God provides what? A substitute. Amen? God provides a substitute for Isaac, a substitutionary sacrifice. In place of Isaac, a ram will be offered up to God. The verse reads, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, he sees God's provision, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. One life is substituted for another here. The ram for Isaac. Friends, God gives here what God had demanded. Amen? He gives what he had demanded. God gives the burnt offering that he had demanded, but it's the ram instead of Isaac. Verse 14. What else is Abraham going to do? So Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Yireh. The Lord will provide. It's where we get Jehovah Jireh from. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Notice very carefully here, friends, that Abraham, notice how thoroughly God-centered Abraham is. We need to learn from this. Abraham could have named this place after his own amazing faith, right? But he doesn't do that. Abraham names the place Yahweh Yira, the Lord will provide, because it's all about God. This story in Genesis 22 is less about Abraham modeling faith for us and more about God and God's provision for what God demands. And the verb translated provide here is the same verb that we encountered back at verse 8, where Abraham had said to Isaac, God will provide. There we noted that the verb is literally a verb of seeing, right? God will see to it. And in seeing to it, God himself will be seen will be exalted, will be glorified. Here in verse 14, Abraham names the place, God will see to it. God will provide, because God has just seen to it, hasn't he? In providing the ram, and God himself is seen in the provision, he deserves praise and worship for the giving of the ram. 
Well, in verses 15 through 18, then, what God does, and we'll go through these verses quickly, he simply now restates, he reaffirms the covenant promises that he had made to Abraham in the earlier parts of Abraham's story. Let's go through these verses, verses 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time now from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, echoing the promise that had been given back in Genesis 12 too. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, echoing Genesis 13.16 and Genesis 15.5. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's new. Probably, Abraham's offspring possessing the gate of their enemies is a prophecy. It's a prophecy of the time coming when Israel would be victorious over the Canaanites in the land. They would possess the gates of their enemies. Verse 18, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Echoing the promises given in Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 18.18. And with the close of verse 18, friends, we have the close of conversation between God and Abraham in the Abraham story. Verse 18 gives us the last words that God speaks to Abraham. Verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men, to the servants who had been waiting with the donkey. And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. And then we have verses 20 through 24. Did you know these verses were in Genesis 22? Verses which don't usually let it get a lot of airtime because they follow on the heels of the very dramatic story that we've just walked through. But in fact, these last verses of Genesis 22, um, they're important. Although they put most of us to sleep because they're full of foreign names. It's a genealogy suddenly. But I think these verses serve a couple of purposes. First of all, very quickly, they show us a great contrast A contrast between 110-year-old Abraham, who has just a single son, who just about died a few verses ago. A contrast between Abraham and Abraham's brother, Nahor, who in these verses is almost unbelievably fertile. Nahor, Abraham's brother, has a small army of sons. In contrast to Abraham. And so maybe the idea is that the people of God represented in Abraham and the resurrected Isaac, maybe the people of God are like a mustard seed compared to the world around them. And then secondly, I think these last verses of the chapter are important because they introduce us to, da-da-da-da, verse 23, Rebecca. Rebecca will become the wife of the freshly resurrected Isaac. So, now there is then a transition being signaled in the text. A transition now starts in the Bible between the story of Abraham, which is very soon to wrap up, and the story of Isaac. We've been introduced to Isaac's wife now. 
Well, friends, what a monumental and beautiful chapter of Scripture this is. Genesis 22 is quite literally about salvation history hanging in the balance. If Isaac would have perished, there would have been no Israel. Isaac quite literally represents the future of Israel in this chapter. And we saw that God provided a substitute for Isaac. God provided a substitute for Israel. Isaac needed a substitutionary sacrifice if he was to live. Israel, represented by Isaac, needed a substitutionary sacrifice if Israel was to live. The point is that God's people, listen, God's people need a substitute to die in their place if they are to live. Amen? Abraham, for his part, trusted God, didn't he? He trusted that God would see to a substitute. In verse 8, he said to Isaac, God will see to it. God will provide the lamb for a burnt offering. And God saw to it. God provided a ram so that God's people might live. God gave what God demanded. And God was glorified. Well, throughout the rest of the Old Testament... God continued to show that he could be trusted to provide substitutes and a substitutionary system so that his people could live. In Exodus 12, God provided Passover lambs so that Israel might live. In Exodus 13 and again in Exodus 29 and Exodus 34, God made provision for a variety of animals to be slain as substitutes for his sinful people. In Leviticus 4 through 7, we have God graciously commanding regular sin offerings to substitute for the people who had sinned. And of course, the whole substitutionary system is formalized, isn't it, later on in the Temple of Solomon. The Old Testament era ends, and hundreds of years, quiet years, pass. One day... John the baptizer sees a man named Jesus. Jesus was from Nazareth. John sees him coming toward him, and in that moment, John exclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes? Behold, our Ram in the thicket. Behold, the one whom God has provided just in time to act as our substitute when the knife was coming on our throats for our sin. God gives in Jesus what God demands. The people of God need a substitute. And he's Jesus the Lamb of God. Jesus himself said in Mark 10.45, he said that he came to do what? To give his life as a ransom for many. And as we've pointed out in times past, in sermons past, that little word for in in that verse literally means in the Greek, instead of, or 
in place of. The Son of Man came to give his life instead of, in place of, many. Jesus is our stand-in, friends. He is our substitute. He is the substitute provided for us by God who takes the death penalty for our sin and forgives us of our sin. When I look at Jesus hanging on the cross, I parrot God's words in Genesis 22:12 back to God. I look at Jesus on the cross and I say to God, here in the cross, I know that you love me, O God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The cross is where I see most certainly that God loves me. He so loved me that he gave his son for me, John 3.16. He willingly crushed his son and put his son to grief, Isaiah 53.10, as an offering for my guilt. God has shown his love for me in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, Romans 5.8. Like Isaac, I needed a substitute in the nick of time, and God has given him in Jesus, his only son, whom he loves. Well, what about you, friend? And then I'm done. Have you trusted Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, as your Savior and as your Lord? I don't care if you've been in church for 40 years. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord? Is the crucified risen, ascended, and soon coming Jesus, Savior and Lord in your life? Are you walking with him? And is he the center of your life and the center of your joy? Is there anything on earth that you desire more than Jesus? I pray that God would take pleasure in drawing someone's heart and mind to Jesus Christ this morning. And I want to make myself available after this service if you'd like to come and chat further about Jesus or have prayer. I'll make myself available. For now, let's go to the throne of grace together once again. Father in heaven, we've seen this morning that Isaac needed a substitute. Israel needed a substitute. We need a substitute. And for us, it's not the ram in the thicket, but it's Jesus Christ whose blood was shed on the cross in order to forgive us our sin and bring us to your heart. We praise you and we thank you. Thanks is just so weak a word, Lord, but we are just so full of gratitude for Jesus Christ, for the life, the eternal life that he has given us. We pray, Lord, as we go into this week that you would strengthen us by this word, Help us to live out the grace that you have given to us, to be people who would listen well to the hurting in our world, tell them about Jesus, draw them uh, to church, Lord, where they can hear the word. We pray these things in Jesus' name that you'd walk with us powerfully by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, 
working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. 